Hello, acquired LPs, and welcome to today's episode on pricing, the ever-important and oft-neglected topic. We decided we really wanted to get back to the shows uh, or the LP shows roots, tackling a specific element of company building. We really like telling stories, and we really like all the sort of um, interviews and histories of companies we've been doing. But we do plenty of that on the main show, and and really wanted to dive into kind of a masterclass in a in a specific element. I think our goal is by the end of the episode, you're all nodding your head and agreeing, oh my God, I have not paid enough attention to pricing and take some of our guests' practical advice to heart. So who is our guest? Well, we have with us today Patrick Campbell. Patrick is the CEO and founder of ProfitWell, which you may formerly have known as Price Intelligently, which is one of their, their product names still today. It is the software for helping subscription companies with their monetization and retention strategies. ProfitWell also provides free turnkey subscription financial metrics for over 20,000 companies. And prior to ProfitWell, Patrick led strategic initiatives for Boston-based Gemvara and was an economist at Google and in the U.S. intelligence community. Patrick and his company uh, have particularly keen insights on SaaS pricing, as I, as I mentioned, but with the thousands of companies that they've worked with, they have tips that can work for just about anyone. So ProfitWell is, is a really interesting company and also a great example for all the bootstrappers out there of a very successful bootstrap company. They've rapidly grown. They do over $10 million in revenue. And so um, you know, if we have time, I think we'll, we'll, we can dive in a little bit to, to that topic as well. So Patrick, welcome to the Acquired LP Show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Excited to chat and go deep on pricing. Yeah. I originally met Patrick at Menlo Ventures, hosted this this cool pricing and packaging day, and it was something that I felt kind of underinformed about. So I went, and I was just absolutely blown away by the the depth of, uh, Patrick, of your thinking on this. And I don't think it's hyperbole to say you're truly one of the best people in the world to, to dive deep on this topic with us. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think it's it's one of those things where you start to learn about it and you realize how much you don't know. So there's still a lot I'm learning myself, but I think it's a uh, good to evangelize the monetization, um, especially in the subscription space. Yeah. And when did you start Price Intelligently? It was about seven and a half years ago now. Um, so right around 2012 um, or later in 2012. And so, yeah, it's been a fun ride. Um, based in Boston, offices now in Rosario, Argentina and Salt Lake City. But yeah, we, we started off strictly on pricing, which is, is has been quite the journey, especially since when I started the company, it was, um, you know, just me in a room and I was battling against all these like, you know, white haired consultants, basically. Yeah. Well, and like subscription based, services like the whole market for them has probably exploded over the whole time that you've been running this company yeah we used to target not just subscription and SaaS companies our first customers actually were um, some SaaS companies but then folks like hallmark uh, reebok um, a couple of other brands like very small projects nothing like major or anything like that but uh, it was kind of cool to to kind of then niche down and the main reason we niched down into subscriptions and SaaS was one because of the growth but also because what we found is for some reason in the world of like retail e-commerce etc they have these giant research teams and consumer insights teams and like hallmark there were 100 people dedicated to market research so we looked at it we're like they don't need us like there's <laughs> nothing you know we could probably find some product but for some reason, all these folks who are now in SaaS and subscriptions, like they don't know anything about this stuff. And so there's a little bit of a disconnect that we we thought, oh, we can double down here and, you know, be a solution within the market. Well, that kind of says everything right there, right? I mean, like Hallmark, Hallmark's a great, great company, actually. In some of my prior lives, I've gotten to know them decently well. 
but like they have a hundred people dedicated to market research and pricing and you know a SaaS company that might have a hundred million in ARR might have half a person <laughs> like to your point that's a huge disconnect yeah if that right yeah well, I think this is a really good uh, segue into sort of the first topic is this sort of overview of pricing. So, Patrick, pricing is is obviously one of the most important levers in a business. Can you talk about why and why people should be so much more obsessed with it and dedicate so much more time than they are? Yeah, and if you let me get philosophical for a second, <laughs> I, I think what it really comes down to is you know, if you think about fundamentally what you're doing, you know, in a business, and it doesn't matter if you're a subscription company, not a subscription company, if you're a nonprofit retail product, doesn't, doesn't really matter what it is. You've created some sort of value, right? And that value, because we don't trade goats for wheat anymore, you're ascribing some sort of number to it, right? You're saying, Hey, this value is worth $10 or this value is worth a hundred dollars. And so at the end of the day, when you, when you think about your business, Basically, everything you're doing is driving a customer to a point of conversion or it's justifying the product or the price, the value that you're putting on that product that you're creating. And so it's one of those things where I think that a lot of people don't realize how central it is to a business. Now, this is also what makes it complicated. And there's so much analysis paralysis that comes with pricing because it means that sales is involved, marketing's involved, products involved, all these other folks are involved. But what's kind of interesting is that when you then look at it from kind of a you know, analytical perspective, you start to realize because of that central nature of pricing, you basically have a huge impact when you do something that related to improving your monetization. To give you some facts and figures, we redid this McKinsey study looking at acquisition, monetization, and retention, you know, the three big pillars in in any business, especially for a subscription business. And what we found is that if you improve each of those levers by the same relative amount, so if you improve leads by 1% in acquisition, your ARPU or ACV by 1% in monetization, or your retention by 1%, pricing is the number one lever in terms of output. Um, It's by four to eight X, depending on the types of business. And I'm not going to say that you're still going to probably spend half your budget and half your time, um, if not more, on acquiring customers, sales, and marketing, right? But I think it's one of those things when you look at the you know, average of 10 to 14 hours a year a company is spending on pricing, you probably can spend a little bit more time. You know, you pick out your toilet paper and probably spend more time like on your toilet paper and custodial supplies than you on your actual pricing. Yeah, it feels a lot like the, the typical path for startups is pick something kind of arbitrary just to get started. And that's a finger in the air thing where you're probably underpricing. I, I, I would guess people tend to underprice generally, but the first one is definitely underpricing just to get people to, to try your thing. And then they get smart after looking at 10 to 100 customers and doing some interviews and then say, cool, we can we know more, we're going to launch a real pricing model now. And then there's some third checkpoint that's more around maturity. But I would assume like, between these things, like companies go a year really without meaningfully revisiting their pricing. I think it's because of that analysis paralysis that I referenced that a lot of people, they actually, the average amount of time that a SaaS or subscription company in particular takes to update their pricing is actually about 2.7, right around three years. 
This is to change anything about their monetization, not just the price point, but packaging changes, et cetera. And, and that number is coming down, thankfully, over time, which I think is great because, you know, we have so much automation and all parts of growth now um, versus, you know, 10 years ago. But I think what what's really important to point out is that I think a lot of people don't realize the different levers they have with monetization. Because when you talk to most founders, it doesn't matter, like I would say up to about 75, 80 million. At that point, you know, there's someone or like even half of a person that they're they're trying to dedicate to monetization. They might not know which levers, but there's at least someone focusing on it. But up until that point, especially people think, you know, hey, here's throw the number in the air, maybe do some interviews, these types of things. But it's, you know, figuring out a price point, putting the most expensive tier on the left side of the page, ending the prices in nines, you know, and calling it a day, right? And in reality, you have your value metric, your add-on strategy, your discount strategy, um, your packaging, your actual price point, and, you know, the list goes on of all these different things that influence your average revenue per user ACV. So one of the biggest suggestions I have for people when they're thinking about monetization is start to think about it less about the price point and more about anything that influences the revenue per customer that you're bringing in. That's part of your monetization strategy. And there's a whole host of things I'm sure we're going to get into to help with that. But yeah, that's that's the conception that's unlocked this for a lot of people, at least that indecision. Yeah, it makes total sense. One, one more thing on the sort of high level before we dive in. I've heard you talk before about uh, the startups today and the challenges they face versus competition relative to three years ago and five years ago. Can you share some of that data and and why it's so much more important to think about pricing in this detailed and holistic way you just sort of described versus when you could throw a finger in the air five years ago? The density in the market's a product of our success as an industry, right? Because, you know, when you were starting a business, you know, now it's probably 20 years ago, if not a little earlier or a little later, your biggest barrier to building a business was the, the technology, right? To have a website, you had to have a server room, right? Which is kind of insane to think about right now, right? No AWS, no Shopify, no Stripe. Yeah, nothing, right? We weren't debating the no-code movement, you know, these types of things, right? And I think that what's happened in the past, you know, two decades has been just amazing from, you know, if the three of us wanted to start our own brand new companies by the end of the day, you know, we could spin up a server, you know, get a website, you know, start driving traffic to that website. Product wouldn't be great. You know, product is still hard to build and because and, you have to think of the right things. Um, but what was amazing the past two decades is this, this cost of production came down. And so we focused so much on just shipping. But there wasn't a lot of stuff out there, right? There weren't a lot of features. And so it was really easy to know what to ship because you either got lucky or you were kind of shipping features into a void. Now, while this was all going on, uh, all of a sudden you started to see these marketing channels just open up every quarter. I don't know about you guys, but I remember when I first discovered business that, you know, Google AdWords were a penny a click, right? Um, and then remarketing ads opened up and then, you know, everything opened up. Well, what's happened in the past few years is, we're kind of reaching, you know, costs are still going to go down. Memory and things like this are, are going to get cheaper and cheaper. Um, but we're kind of reaching a little bit of a flattening, right? Where we've figured out all these really cool, you know, ways to ship code faster and how to make dev teams productive. But now we're on the margins. The other thing that's happened is the last major marketing channel that's opened up was 2015 and it was Snapchat right? Which is not really relevant to everyone. And yes, there's been innovation and things like that, but there, there hasn't been like there was, you know, in the early 2000s, let alone in the early 2010s. What's happened is we've seen competitiveness go from a place of, you know, five or so years ago, you know, you had maybe 
two, three competitors, direct or indirect, um, to all of a sudden, if you started a company today, the average number of competitors you'd have in a lot of different verticals that we looked at would be about 15. And they wouldn't all be good. You know, they wouldn't all be great. But in addition to that, customer acquisition costs, because of all those channels, like not just reinventing themselves, that's gone up about 70% in the past seven, eight years. So the customer you got for $100 seven, eight years ago is now 170, 180. The value of software, like unfortunately, software isn't as magical. Like you used to be able to put a login screen on a database and you were a god. And now if it doesn't have good design, good support, I'm not even going to have a conversation with you. What this has all kind of led to is you now need a balanced growth strategy. You're still going to spend 50% of your on sales and marketing. Like that's just a fact of like high growth, but you got to think a little bit more about pricing, a little bit more about your retention uh, because what we've noticed in the data is you pretty much need to be good at acquisition to just kind of survive at this point from a startup fast growth kind of perspective. Um, and in order to actually get those big gains, um, you got to have some good monetization. You got to have some good retention. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search guidance or market outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature along allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. Well, it's a good place to dive deep as any. So uh, you say good monetization, good retention. Let's dive in on good monetization. So pricing models. You mentioned the website with the three plans, the smallest on the left, the biggest on the right. What's sort of the high-level overview of types of pricing models uh, that a company could elect to use? So 
used to be, you know, when you think about most products, right? You know, hey, we have one product, one price. You know, think about like a retail product that we're selling. And then, you know, a lot of the advice in in SaaS and software was, hey, good, better, best, right? You should have three plans, right? Not everyone's created equal. Um, and it was great advice for the time, and it's still good advice. But what's happened over the past like two decades is uh, billing systems. I know it's not the sexiest topic, but billing systems have finally gotten to a place where they're, you know, hey, we can charge on different things, right? You know, email consumption, users, these types of things. I know it sounds like so pedantic right now, but 20 years ago, if you wanted to charge on anything but per user, it was really hard, right? Like, hey, how are we going to measure the amount of engagement? How are we going to measure the number of emails? Um, and it was expensive to measure, right? And so what's kind of cool now is we're in this world where we could essentially charge on mostly anything. What that's led to is most of the new wave, you know, the new wave cohort, like companies started in the past like five years, let's say, um, they're using what are called value metrics. So basically, hey, it's it's some measure of usage or some measure of value. So with Retain, our, our retention product, we price based on how much money we recover for you, right? And we can measure that and we can get the customer to agree with it. Um, HubSpot, obviously big B2B example, you know, they price based on, you know, basically the number of contacts that you have in your database because presumably more contacts, you're getting more value. And so what, what's kind of happened is you have a couple of models, right? There's like just, hey, you just get this software kind of like the perpetual model. You have a per user or let's just say, a, you know, a differentiated package, right? So you, there's no measurement of a value metric, but, you know, you get these features in package A, these features in package B, these features in package C. There's a pure value metric model, like, Everyone gets all the features except, hey, there's this, you know, kind of consumption metric in some way. And then there's kind of like a hybrid. On top of all this is there's add-ons and things like that that people can deploy. But those are kind of the four main models. And most people are in the latter two. You know, there's still about 40% of like SaaS companies, subscription companies out there that are just doing like feature differentiation. There's no measurement of a metric. Those companies are starting to, to kind of die out. They're mostly incumbents um, or they're changing very quickly because, you know, they have the billing system and the wherewithal to kind of change things up. Yeah. I mean, I think about it, as you're talking, especially that last bucket makes me think of Zoom, right? Like, you know, Zoom is like it's price per seat, but there are so many add-ons that you can pay for and like all sorts of bells and whistles and features and like I haven't quite thought about it, but like they must have invested a ton in their like billing and customer database technology to be able to do that. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, and that's why, you know, the, and I, we can get into billing systems if you really want to integrate <laughs> partner with these folks. But, um, but that's why what I like to tell people is once you get around three to 5 million in ARR um, or, an, or annual revenue, uh, you got to invest in a billing system. It doesn't have to be the Cadillac in the market like Zora. All roads do lead to Zora though. Um, Zoom uses Zora because they have needs so much, you know, flexibility. But I think the, the larger point there, which, which I want to point out is like add-ons are, are one of the most underutilized strategies in B2B and in D2C. And one of the most interesting things is, is that what you're trying to do from like a theory perspective is every consumer is different. And if we play this out long enough, like there will be dynamism in subscription and SaaS pricing in some way, you know, in the next 20 years, right? Because, you know, you're, we're going to be able to somehow measure your willingness to pay, you know, based on your profile. We're going to measure your willingness to pay based on your profile. And, you know, there's, we're already doing this in like inside sales in some ways, right? That's a little far out there though. And even segment based pricing is tough right now. Like knowing you that mean the like LTV from unique pricing per user, like every, every 
based on all the data a company could have on that person, they come up with a one-to-one. There's like one price for that person because we know exactly the value you'll get out of it. Yep. Yeah, kind of like the travel industry, right? Now, a lot of people will say like, it'll never happen because of this or that. And, And normally those objections come for, well, what if they talk to each other? Well, this kind of already happens in enterprise software. It kind of already happens in a lot of our consumer products. And so if you take one step back from there, it's, you know, segment-based pricing. So there's a world where you know, and and you know, there's there's definitely some big questions here about like measurement and things like that. But you know that the LTV, the lifetime value from that SEO like channel customer, is you know so much better than the lifetime value from that Facebook channel customer, right? And so what you end up doing is, hey, well, I'm going to actually increase my price on the Facebook customer because it's just not worth serving them or lower my price because maybe it you know, gets more volume or you know whatever the decision comes with the data. Now, where we are right now, just to talk not about the future, but like where we are kind of now is, you know, you can do different persona-based or profile or you know however you're measuring your different segments of your customer base with different packages, right? So they might come in with you know, your base plan, right? And then based on their usage and their use of the product, I should say, you can offer them certain add-ons and then you can offer them the value metric as, you know, they go up, they're paying more. And so all of a sudden you don't have infinite packages that are one-to-one, but you start to have a lot of permutations of, you know, what people are paying. And that's kind of the goal, right? Because you don't want everyone paying the same amount. I don't want the Disney, you know, company paying the same amount as Johnny or Jane's startup, right? And so there's a lot of ways to do that right now. And, you know, in the future, it'll get easier with tooling and stuff like that. How should companies think then about related to that, the freemium or trial or like the free aspect of what they're doing? I I would be shocked if you say anything other than like free and freemium is like a major innovation in pricing, but I'm so curious to hear your, hear your thoughts. Yeah. So I think that people, and this is semantic, I, I like to try to separate it from pricing because I think too many people, you know, and, and we were talking about this earlier, like free freemium is kind of one of those religious topics, right? <laughs> you know, and, you know, since, but, but people don't realize freeware has been around forever, not yeah. just in software, right? Shareware. Um, there's always, yeah, right. There's all kinds of stuff where you're like, okay, I'm going to give you this, like this part. And to get the rest of the chapters, you have to sign up for this magazine, you know, to get the Charles Dickens books, you know, these types of things, right? What I like to say is that freemium is an acquisition model. It's not a revenue model. And you need to think about it as a premium ebook, basically. And I think every, you know, not to get out there again, but I think every company is going to have freemium in some way, because if you just think about rising costs over the years, it's going to come to a point where like those ebooks aren't working as well as they used to content just isn't working as well. And you want to nurture that lead and own that lead. And so I think the beauty of freemium and um, to be completely and actually honest, I used to write articles of a very anti-free, um, you know, as the pricing guy, right? But I think, it, you know, freemium, freemium was an innovation because what you're doing is remember, it's about that value, right? And some of those customers coming to you who are just maybe higher up in the funnel or they're just maybe not ready for prime time, um, but they still like like you and they still want to kind of engage with you because maybe they'll want to purchase at some point in the future. You need something to give them and giving them content. There's so much distraction out there and things like that. And the beauty of freemium is you're basically lowering the activation energy for that lead or that potential customer to come in. 
they start using the product. And then depending on the model you use, and there's a couple of different types of freemium, you either put a limit. So, you know, 14 to 21 days into that freemium plan, they're hitting that limit. So that's like a faux free trial, we call it. Or like ProfitWell, it's like it's forever free or our metrics product. And, you know, eventually, you know, in six months or seven months, you you find that little button inside there and you're like, oh, yeah, I do. I don't like that this metric's going down. Like, let me get this demo so I can get this product that improves this metric. Right. And so I think that that's why I always say, like, it is part of pricing um, ultimately because it's a plan. But I think people need to think about it marketing first than anything. And and what I will say, just for some of the folks listening, if you are just starting out and you do not have a top 25 growth hacker, I don't know what we're calling growth hackers these days. I know growth hackers out of vogue. <laughs> it's come full circle back to marketing. <laughs> I know, yeah. But if you, yeah, that's that's really funny. I like that. But if, if you don't have that person, you should not be doing free out of the gate. And, and someone who's truly that good. Uh, we all think we're that good, like, but like someone who's like the Balfours, the Casey's of the world, just because they're the ones who who can actually sustain that. The most successful freemium models that we've seen, they they weren't started until like three, four years into the company. What makes them good? I know this is a little derailment. For, for someone that's like, I guess, never been around a, an A-plus growth person like that, and they kind of feel like a lot of the people that they've worked with are good, how do you know? I don't know if I'm the one to answer it, but here's here's kind of how I think about it. It's an odd discipline to not go in until you're certain. And that's that's what I found with like really good growth folks. So so Brian Balfour, a good friend of mine, um, he runs Reforge. I don't know if you heard of the 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 growth program. I've known him at HubSpot, Viximo before that, and because he's he's you know, he's a Michigan guy, but he was in Boston um, when I was in Boston. And he when I talked to him about this, I kind of, I didn't pose that exact question, but I talked to him about like, Hey, what makes someone good at growth? And what he talked about was, you know, the discipline not to, to basically chase a bunch of things, right? Like most marketers, if, when you really meet them, they chase things, even if they have like a quarterly like plan. Um, basically what ends up happening is they like, Oh, this is what I did at my last company. Uh, or, and this is the same thing that happens with pricing, right? You know, Oh, I did this in my last company. We need a Facebook strategy. Oh, it's very different, right? And so what Belfort will do is he he does this whole growth loop, right? And that's what most of them do. And they do a ton of research, ton of hypothesis testing. And as soon as they know that this is the thing, they go all in, just unabashedly so. This is the Berkshire Hathaway approach to growth. <laughs> totally. And then there's a whole there's a whole long tail, right, of just like the discipline to run these loops and constantly be running these loops. And loops are basically, okay, we're pushing experiments every week or every end days or whatever it ends up being. And I think that's like being that diligent about, you know, and I think we're calling it actually full stack marketer, I just realized. And so being that diligent about being a full stack marketer is 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 really hard to find someone. There's definitely more than 25 of those people in the world, but I think it's just in the early days with freemium to bring it back to freemium, you're just adding distracting leads. That's all you're doing. You don't know. You don't even know your beachhead customer. You don't know the viral coefficient that you need. You don't know what is the thing that's going to create the network effect. Um, you don't even know if you need a network effect, right? That's really where it comes down to. And most of the time, the people who are successful at Freebium three, four years into their business, they know how to convert a paying customer to uh, or a free customer to a paying customer, and they also know, hey, like we're just trying to open the top of the funnel at this point it's a premium ebook. Like we're just trying to open the top of the funnel because we know how to move people through the funnel and we just need more leads. So you mentioned, we don't know if we need a network effect. So the one way that I've always tried to slice, should you do a trial versus should you do forever free is 
if your product has a network effect or a data moat where the more data that comes into the platform or the more people on it, the better, then you should have a forever free plan to try and get that the value of all that data or all that connectivity. But if it doesn't, and every incremental customer is doesn't deliver new value for that next customer, then just stick them on a trial and ask them for money after a few weeks. Is that right? Is that how you think about it, whether someone should do forever free versus trial? So in the context of freemium, yes, but I want to I want to just clarify. Um, I don't think you should do trials anymore, like at all. There's always exceptions to Oh, no, I say, gross, boy, this is gross great. generalizations, but um, I don't think you should do trials anymore because you should do the faux free trial that I was describing. And, and here's why. So let's talk about uh, superhuman. Yesware. Let's talk about like Yesware, right? So Yesware was one of the first uh, email tracking products. So you send an email, you can see if someone opens it. Um, great for salespeople or whatever, right? So what they did is they gave you, and I don't remember the exact numbers, um, so don't quote me on it, but they they said, okay, our target customer they're going to burn through 100 opens um, or tracks or whatever they called it within 14 to 21 days, right? So we know that if we give them 100 per month for free, those people who are target customers are essentially going to self-select, right? They're going to get something at that 101st track that says, hey, you got to sign up. And they're either going to sign up and then you got to deal with churn or retention, right? Or they're going to go, cool, I'm going to wait till next month, which means they probably weren't an actual target customor um, or a target buyer persona or a deal customer profile, whatever framework you want to use for buyers. Now, if I had a trial, let's say I gave them the 14, 21 day trial, I'm still getting people who sign up who probably aren't ready for prime time to convert. But what ends up happening is that at day 15, all of a sudden I start spamming them. Hey, you got to sign up. It ended. Can't use the product anymore. Can't use it. And then I have a 14 day drip of trying to get them to convert. Well, that person probably isn't going to go from a non-ideal customer to an ideal customer in those next 14 days, but they might six months from now or three months from now. So faux free trials, what it allows me to do is allows me to nurture that lead until they're ready. Right. Because they could they could say, oh, I got to 14 days. You know, I can't use the rest of this month. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to start using it again next month. And then they're going to do that for a couple months. And maybe by month four, they're like, you know, I actually want to use this. Or, what ends up happening is you can start looking at their usage and you can go, cool, anyone who gets over this usage, we're just going to automatically start adding the tracks, right? Or on day 31, they're just going to start getting those notifications again. They're like, oh yeah, I remember that yes we're thing, right? It puts the onus of conversion more on the user than on the business, right? And this is from an investment standpoint for, for, for you guys, when you look at this, it's you can't look at that first 30 days of conversion in a freemium model and be like, oh, this company's great or this company sucks. You have to look at a cohort of those free users. Like are, how many are converting within a six-month window, a 12-month window, a three-month window, depending on the business? Because that then you're like, oh, wow, there, there's gold in these hills because they're still converting down 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 the path, basically. Well, that makes me remember. You might say this is a little bit of a different dynamic, but uh, Zoom, when we did our episode, we talked to Santi. When they were doing diligence on Zoom, they were like, oh man, they have a churn problem. Like all these customers are signing up and then they're churning. But then when they zoomed out on the data, they were like, no, no, they're churning, but then they're coming back. Like, you know, like, and and if you looked at it in a like six months, 12 month period, you're like, oh crap, we thought there was a churn problem. There's actually like no churn problem. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and that's what's so interesting. Just to make sure I understand the 
faux part of the free trial, you're basically gating on an engagement metric or a usage metric rather than a time metric for the free trial. Yeah. That's why I call it a faux free trial because it's, you know, that hundred visits and that's, that's how you set how much you give for that freemium is my ideal customer profile. I want them to kind of convert in a certain time period. So maybe it's 30 days, maybe it's 45 days, depending on the the enterpriseiness typically of the product. And then, you know, you kind of set that usage at that mark. And then obviously within those 14, 30, 45 days, you're doing everything you can to uh, to get them, you know, to use or get to those, you know, milestones to, to be really invested in the product. Cool. Well, I like that as a nice bow on sort of how to think about your pricing model at a high level. Now let's get into like actually pricing it and picking numbers. So there's sort of, I'll ask this in a loaded way, but in our discussion of how to test whether you are pricing well, can you just A-B test prices? If you have the ability, and what I mean by that is the traffic and the completes, uh, 100%. You know, Amazon, they can do a price test for a majority of their products in 30 seconds, right? But here's the thing. A-B testing... And there's a lot of like stuff that's been written on AB versus multivariate, one tail, two tail, all kinds of stuff. Like go back to your statistics course, right? Uh, the problem is the concept of testing experimentation lulls a lot of us into a false sense of security of, oh, we'll just AB test it, right? You hear that all the time. Oh, we'll just test it. And then no one ever like sets up the test correctly um, and it, like completes it. We did a study. We haven't talked about this data in a long time. Because we were really curious, because really what we do with the pricing product is quantified customer development, right? We're doing we're doing customer research. We're just doing it with a lens of monetization, right? And what we found is like, well, how many people are actually doing any research? And you know what we found is that most companies, and this this was the gambit of you know Johnny and Jane startups all the way to Fortune 500 companies um, in this data set. Most companies and product organizations and marketing organizations are talking to really 10 or less customers in a non-sales capacity in a given month, which is not a lot if you really think about it in terms of research. And the pushback we always got was, well, you know, we don't talk to our customers, Patrick. Like, we don't do that, but we do A-B testing. Well, half of the data set, zero tests per month, including marketing tests. Like, they don't even test subject lines in a lot of cases, right? And I know that sounds bonkers because, you know, the people on this listening to this podcast, they're probably not in the general. They're more in the elite, theoretically. And so what, what I want to say, like, in terms of testing is if you have truly significant um, and authentic tests, like, go for it. I think that works out well. But here's here's the problem for the majority of us, especially in B2B. We probably don't have the traffic to get enough completes to even just do a simple A-B test, let alone all of the different pieces that come with changing up a price. So if you look at a traditional SaaS pricing page, let's say you got three tiers and you got like five different, you know, feature differentiations, that's somewhere around 85 different variations of tests. And so it's one of those things where we just don't even have traffic for AB, let alone the 85. So what we recommend doing is if you don't have that traffic, it's totally fine. Do research. And then that'll kind of basically take the problem space down. And then when you have that output, maybe then you do an A-B test or you're not going to have any traffic to do even an A-B test with the majority of B2B companies. So then you have to do a little bit of a time test and just make sure you're measuring the KPIs. Um, And you'll know like, hey, this has changed things. Maybe you don't know like, 
Could it have been a little bit better? Could, should it have been a little bit worse? But you at least know based on tracking those KPIs um, as you implement things. Um, and yeah, it's going to be a risk because you're not going to know until you put it in the market. But with enough research, you're, you're at least are hedging as much of that risk as possible. And what would you say like is a... Uh well, this is also a super loaded question. We were talking a little bit before. That's what right. would you say is a viable minimal sample size for for doing that? Like, oh, there you go. Sample size, go. right? <laughs> it's a measure of variance, man. Yeah. Uh, it's it's super tough because it's not about uh, the beginning of the trials or the beginning of the freemiums. Because that's the other thing you have to think about. In a subscription or recurring revenue business, technically, you're going to have to track this data all the way through like probably first 90-day retention. And it's it's not the the sign up, it's the completes. So it's the actual purchases here. It's not like, hey, this many people click this one and this many people click that one. It's well, they signed up, they paid us after the freemium or the free trial, and they were with us ninety days. So what I also find is that you you just slow your tempo down too much. So again, going back to the research, to give a direct answer to your question, like depending on the circumstances, you can calculate these things and there's tons of data. We wrote a book on statistics for SaaS executives. That's what we called it just to kind of educate like our base. But yeah, it's, it's one of those things that there's a lot out there to kind of calculate those exact numbers, but that's the thing to think about. It's the completes and then it's the cohort that you have to look at. And that gets really complicated over, over, you know, a year. Okay, so we're saying, look, we can't do this ultra quantitative thing because we just don't have enough completes. And it would take a really long time to get all the way to complete for 90 days or even longer. So let's do some research. What's the like, hey, I'm starting a startup. I'm picking numbers out of the air. I've, I've talked to a few customers. I know they want this. They've told me they'd pay for it. We haven't really gotten clear on what they would pay for it. Like what, what type of research should they do here? What questions should they ask? And how much is qualitative versus quantitative yeah i I think in that scenario it's it's going to be almost even if you do some some a b testing because there's like signal like you can change some stuff up and do see what people click on and that's signal right it's not the whole cohort like i described but you at least can then make some decisions and and the one thing i will say is that even with multivariate testing and research you got to always understand the limits of your data i think that's a big deal like we were kind of talking about this before where you know, people, they, they really like to agree with the data that, that agrees with the, what they think. And then even if it's the same data set and there's something that they don't agree with, oh, the data was a problem there, right? And I think it's, you got to know, like, if you're going to make a $10 million, $100 million decision, you're going to have to collect some, do some research. If you can do testing, you have to do the testing. If you're, you know, in the, in the world where you have Zoom or Slack or Amazon, you absolutely can do testing, which is great. If you're a startup and you're making a perceived million dollar decision, but you don't have a lot of money to spend on research, like it's okay to be qualitative. You just have to understand the limits and then check back in in three months, six months, et cetera. So, but to answer your question directly, which was around like what type of research to do, um, there's some models of, hey, put it up there, see what people click. I'm a bigger fan of just literally going to the human beings that you're trying to sell to and talking to them. And I think this is the biggest misconception is that people are like, well, people aren't going to tell you what they actually are willing to pay. It's like, well, that's, you know, yes, you're not going to know until you actually hit publish and you look at some of the data in three months. But there are ways that you can have this conversation that lead to really rich data that allows you to make decisions. And so there's a couple of models that you can use. So I'll talk about those two models, a little hard in podcast form to go deep on them, but, um, and then I'll talk about like one caveat when it comes to, you know, making sure that you, you look at this research in the right way. So the two models that we recommend, um, and this is from an efficiency standpoint, you could go do conjoint analysis. If you've heard of that conjoint is super expensive, just in terms of time and costs. 
And there are models that get you close enough, at least in my opinion and my analysis, that costs you know a tenth of what it costs to implement those types of surveys. But remember, you got two axes when it comes to value of anything. Um, the first axis of value is the relative value of the features or the attributes of that product. The other axis is the, the willingness to pay or the price. Uh, so one one tool or one kind of methodology that anyone can use. There's a bunch of like information, Wikipedia articles, stuff like that on this. Is something called Max Diff to look at the value of features. So this is where I go to you and I say, hey, I got these five attributes, or you go to the person who's been demoing or using the product or beta testing the product and say, hey, there's these five aspects of product A. What's the most important? What's the least important? And I can do that on a phone call, right? I can do that scalably through a survey, but the beauty of that is you're forcing them to make a decision. Choose most important, choose least important, because most of our surveys are terrible. Like everyone hates surveys, and the reason we hate surveys is not, it's not like statistically, they're so good if you do them right. But we suck. We just suck as operators. And we send these like 45 question surveys. We email them to people. And the first question on the survey is, what's your email address? Right? Like that's a terrible, terrible situation to be in. Right? And so like, don't blame the survey. Nobody wants to answer that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it's, and just to give you some data. So our, our price tells you software, it's survey based. We've sent, I think it's actually about 80 million of these things at this point. And so we've looked at this and and what you'll, if you have a non-compensated survey, it's got to be less than four minutes. uh, Not only because your response rate goes down, but the quality of your response is tank. So even the responses you're getting, it's people yeah. who are like, oh, I want to I want to win yeah, that iPad, like, click, right? Click, click, you know, click, click, yeah. click, right? Um, and really, it should be 30 to 60 seconds, which is four or five questions, depending on the length of the questions. Um, and if you do that, you can send these surveys like once every three to six weeks. Um, you know, that's what we've kind of found. Now, you got to be careful with like, you know, there's a batch of people who are always, you know, answering survey questions. You want to always put more people into that batch. Um, but yeah, so MaxDiff is really, really good for like features. The other tool that we suggest and using MaxDiff being is, which uh, uh, amongst what you say your five features, MaxDiff yep. being the highest versus the lower, like what yep. uh, most important, least important, right? Got it. Um, and that's and it's important to like follow that that specific instruction. Uh, rank order is doesn't work well. Because the one and two rank are typically, you know, intellectually honest from from the respondent. Three, four, and five, they're just like, eh, I want to move on, right? Um, and there's a lot of signal and least important, right? Because as, as founders, we always have this vision, right? And as operators, we have this vision of like, this is what we see, right? And we want to go do everything we can to put that vision into place. If I know that like the least important thing is the thing that I thought our whole centered marketing around needs to be, I probably need to like, you know, readjust or like really dig into the data. Now, on the pricing side, what we want to do is we want to take advantage of how people think about value. And as human beings, economists and psychologists have studied this for years, and they found we think about value as a spectrum where we know that this water bottle here is worth less than this computer that I'm on, right? And if you put me in the desert for three days, all of a sudden without water, that value is going to flip. And this is because we've purchased these products before, but also my circumstance, whole host of things. So we have to ask in the right way. And one of the most efficient ways we found to ask, and again, it's not perfect, but one of the most efficient ways we found is using what's called this Van Westendort model, which is I ask you, at what point is this way too expensive that you would never consider purchasing it? Uh, I think Rahul talked about this on our superhuman episode. Yeah, yeah, I've, Rahul. Yeah, Rahul. Well, we've we've had plenty of conversations on pricing, which is great. And so, and then at what point is it getting expensive, but you never consider purchasing it? At what point is it a good deal? And at what point is it too cheap that you'd question the quality of it? And that last question is really important, um, especially for any European listeners. 
European countries uh, or founders typically underprice their products so much. I think there's a little bit of like little brother syndrome to to the U.S. in a lot of ways. You know, and also like Eastern Europe, like this Ukrainian company I was talking to, you know, twenty dollars for their product per month and their premium plan. And I was like, hey man, you got to up that to like a hundred dollars at least. I don't even need to test it. It's just you need to get up there for your premium plan, right? And he's like, I can't imagine because a hundred dollars is a lot of money, right? And but their customers are all in the U.S., right? But back to the the Van Westendorp model, the beauty of this is if I go ask thirty people, I can get you know it's not going to be quantitative. I'm not going to make a ten million dollar decision on it, but I at least understand am I a hundred dollar product? Am I a thousand dollar product? And then I can up basically the respondents to kind of increase the integrity. And the one thing I will say is, is Van Westendorp, the innovation was the questions or were the questions. The calculations, the standard calculations aren't amazing. Um, they're great if you're just doing qualitative or if you have so many responses, they, they really triangulate. Because those standard calculations, there's something about trying to get like, there's some 40% threshold where you want. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the thing you're referring to in the calculations. It just gets... Yeah, just when you do, because what you do is you just graph the answers to each question and theoretically you find where the intersections are. So it creates this little diamond of like, this is where we should be. But the, the the calculations, it's, you know, whenever you have a model that theoretically can be used for any industry and any like sales model and all this other stuff, you, you got to adjust it if you're going to make a larger decision. So like what we did is um, for our software is we took the questions and that's kind of how we run it. And we have some modifications depending on the application. We took the questions and then we kind of threw out how they calculated and we like redid a bunch of stuff in order to, to kind of have our own IP, frankly. Um, and what you'll find just to give you a little bit of a litmus, like we're our software, we're at the point where it's like plus or minus about 3% of reality. And, and we check it with like commodities and things like that. Van Westendorp, just standard, you'll probably be about plus or minus like 20, 25% of reality, which again, like if you're making a 10 million dollar decision, ugh, that's a little, that's a little much. But if you're just a Johnny or Jane startup, just starting out, like that's fine, right? Like if you're just within get it plus out or there. minus 20, 25%. You're, you're, <laughs> you are in the 99th percentile of you know, yeah, early yeah. stage startups. Now, the one note that I'll make um, is the most important thing with any data, I would argue segment, segment, segment. Do not look at the aggregate. The aggregate data is interesting, especially when you track it over time, but you got to segment it down. And, and I think the biggest, the biggest pushback people are, you know, there's a lot of people who are like, you can't talk to customers about pricing. And we're like, well, you shouldn't just talk to customers. You should talk to prospects. People have never heard of you who are your target customer base, because what should happen when you do price testing is people have never heard of you, but are in your target base are willing to pay the least. And then the people who are, you know, have been with you for 12 months should be willing to pay the most, assuming that they're the same type of person. Almost all the time when we work with companies, it's complete opposite. And people are like, well, people won't pay more. And it's like, well, you've, have you ever tested pricing? No. It's like, well, you've anchored yourself into thinking that your product's only worth this much because that's what you put, you know, three years ago when you started the company. And now all of a sudden we actually do need to raise the, the, the price on new customers, you know, to this level. And we need to find a plan to take those existing users and get them to, to a higher level um, price. Um, and there's a couple ways to do that, obviously. Yeah. Before we get into that, because I'm very curious about sort of grandfathering strategies there. 
um, or another gra- religious topic. I never, so. <laughs> yeah, I never hear people say grandmothering, but I suppose for gender equity, yeah. So, uh, listeners, we're going to put links to both Max Diff and Van Westendorp in the show notes here. Um, I don't know, Patrick, if you have a page on that, or we, I'm sure we can find some really good good blog posts on each. I'm also going to link to a, a screenshot of a slide that I have of, uh, in a deck from you that I think is this awesome matrix of uh, of that graph you described. So, x-axis is relative uh, preference magnitude. So in terms of like ranking, what's the most important feature? What's the least important feature? And then the y-axis is the sort of willingness to pay. And so I love this notion that like in the right top quadrant, where everyone wants to be, that's your like high value, high willingness to pay. You call them differentiable features. And then when you want to figure out what should be an add-on, that's over in the left, where it's not everyone's relative preference, but there is high willingness to pay for it. Now, if you think about the bottom right, that's sort of your like high value but low willingness to pay. That's your core feature set. Like you want to make sure that since there's only low willingness to pay around that, that's not going to move the needle for you when you're putting it on as an add-on. And then anything in that bottom left, <laughs> you call trash land, where there's low yeah, value yeah. and only low in marketing. Not in our output for our product. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But yeah, if there's yeah. low willingness to pay and low value, like that gives you really obvious signal on, oh my God, we shouldn't even be developing these features. Yeah. And some, in some cases, yeah. So we, we developed this actually, we just started noticing trends, a lot of trends, right? Where uh, priority support, never like the most important feature relative to, you know, other things like obviously the core aspects of the product, but there was a good group of people who had high willingness to pay for it, like certain segments, right? And so we wanted to kind of visualize, even if we we're just not even to collect data, but just mentally think about it, where do we think our features are and things like that. And, and the one thing I will say is features do move between these quadrants as well, right? If you think about two-factor authentication, used to be an add-on, then it was a differentiable feature. Now, it w- well, it was core, and we're starting to show it up in trash now. And that's something that's important that like, you're going to have to probably build some trash. Um, and that's why it's a little like, you know, sensational to call it trash. Because, because everybody not, just like, expects it now. Exactly. It's like, if you don't have it, I'm not even going to consider you. 100%. So like the login screen that would show up in trash. That's the most you know outlandish, you know, feature, right? <laughs> um, but like a lot of security stuff has kind of gone around the quadrants. Um, things like Active Directory, um, those have like stayed in the add-on world, which is kind of interesting. And, and then obviously your core features are probably always going to be in core but it's been interesting to track some of these features over time um, just because you know as the market's gotten denser and more features are out there it's been been super fascinating really interesting okay let's return back to your three years into your business uh you've managed to you know triple in your first year and then triple again in your second year things are going well but those first customers that were with you they've been on that same price point the whole time and you want to be nice to them because they were nice to you early and frankly you think they might churn because your ICP has changed they may not necessarily be that perfect customer for you anymore so you never change the price that's probably the wrong thing to do what's the right thing to do yeah I want to be careful with right and wrong, right? Uh, but uh, I think uh, you know, again, a religious topic with grandfathering or grandmothering. Well, let's let's be gender neutral. I think I think that, or inclusive, I should say. I, I think that here's the thing: it is a really great idea when you are in the 
like everything is terrible stage, which, you know, it always feels that way in certain aspects, but you're in the, like, I'm just starting out and it's a really fun idea to be like, we are never going to do these things, right? We're never going to hire salespeople. I hear that from a lot of fun, you know, apps. And it's like, well, you know, the mid-market enterprise, the people who really like your software, so you're probably going to need to hire some salespeople, right? Even that Lassian and Slack have sales, right? But PLG, come on, PLG. It'll, it's going to take know, us the I whole know. way. <laughs> hey, it, it, in certain ways it will, right? Like I, I think, you know, the secret is always like, you really have everything, you know, at, at the, the late stage or the, the growth stage, right? In terms of grandfather and grandmother, it, it's, it's one of those things where people love to say like, we are never going to raise prices on these folks. And, and that's that. The problem isn't from zero to 10 million ARR. So if you want to be just a, a lifestyle, or I don't want to use lifestyle, where we call them indie businesses now, if you want to be an indie <laughs> business, um, which, which I respect and it's awesome. And if that's your path, like that's awesome, right? It's the new corner store, right? Is, is, is a software company, which I think is great. Then you can never, you don't have to you know, upgrade people. You don't have to like force them on new plans. That's totally fine. If you're trying to be a hundred million dollar company, it is extremely rare that you find a hundred million dollar company that's somewhere between 10 and a hundred. They did not raise prices on people and they didn't do it multiple times. Because if you think about it, you have a good market share from zero to 10. You're kind of like scrapping to get the market share. Right. And then all of a sudden you have that market share. You have this existing customer base and you're like, well, let's build a new product. It was hard enough to get the first one for these people to buy, let alone the second one, right? And then you're like, well, we'll do add-ons. Well, that can take you a long way, but it's not going to take you the full way, right? And the thing I like to remind people is go back to that philosophy of what price is. It's a measurement of that value. It's the exchange rate on the value that people are getting. Has your value increased? Well, your brand's improved. Your um, stickiness has improved. Your UI's improved. The actual feature set you're giving away is, is improving. It's a whole host of things. And so it's less about don't do it, do it. It's more do it in the right way. And so what we recommend, and I can share like a template um, of kind of like, it, it's a bit of a generic like email that we recommend using, um, but it's one of those things you can apply and it kind of goes through the, the four or five steps we recommend is one, do what's called a grandfather discount. And that's basically, uh, you've seen this in a number of ways. It's like, hey, um, you've been so loyal. Thank you so much. You've been awesome. You've been with us for four and a half years. You're using this new feature. You're using this feature all the time. We've made you $18,000 over the past year. Like remind them of that personalized value and then tell them, hey, you've been so loyal. We're going to give, we're going to raise prices on everyone new. Not you, everyone new. You're going to keep your existing price for the next six months as a reward, right? And I probably wouldn't go that far and lay it on thick. I was doing that just for effect, but I think <laughs> that's the big thing, right? And then, my, my, like, I think one of the nicest hacks with raising prices is PS, if this materially impacts your business or you, if it's a D2C product, please let us know and we'll work something out. And that PS is for two types of people. It's for people like me who I'm a bootstrap founder. I don't want to spend money on anything, you know, right. I don't want to do that. Right. But I'm going to look at that and I'm going to go, I, you know, yeah, this guy or gal is right. They've been so valuable. They did add that feature that I really love. I'm not going to be a jerk. Like this is totally fine. And it's also for people it's actually impacting. So they can email and be like, hey, cool. And then you can just gain so much relationship points and be like, oh, hey, hey, not a problem. Not a problem, you know, founder or exec or whomever. Um, we're going to give you, you know, we're going to give you three months. We're going to give you actually nine months on that, that grandfather discount. And then if that's a problem still, like you let us know, right? Because it's not about like being, you know, a jerk. It's about, hey, things cost money. They know that things cost money. Like that's the big misconception is like people don't know that things cost money. Um, and so you just have to do it in the right way. Um, now, a couple of caveats. 
if you have a massive TAM, target addressable market, you can get away with grandfathering if you really want. I have this debate with Nick Francis from Help Scout all the time uh, because he's so like for our customers, right? And we gave up $10 million because we grandfathered. And I'm like, okay, man, that's cool. You didn't have to, like you could have gotten all 10 million, but, um, but that's fine. Cause help desks, massive, massive market. He can punt on that decision. Also with Nick specifically, I've used uh, help scout now at four companies and I'm sure the first one's grandfathered in, but like I've stood it up in three other companies now that they have gotten full rack rate. So yeah, <laughs> totally. Sure and yeah. I think that, yeah. And I think that that works out well. Right. And that, that it's one of those things though, that these, these don't have to all be mutually exclusive, right? Like you probably would have had that brand equity to use them anyways, because it's a great product, right? Even though you weren't paying as much. Right. And so, um, at the original company, and then the other caveat is you have to have done your research before you raise a price. And you can't have terrible NPS or CSAT scores. Uh, we've seen a few people try to raise prices and their customers, their customer satisfaction scores were in the tank. And it was just, you know, it was, it was like, <laughs> yeah, that's the wrong terrible, time to raise right? prices. And we're like, what yeah. are you doing? Why are you doing that? Right. And so um, that's the thing. And, and, and then like the minor, a little minor caveat is anyone who receives like a greater than 50% increase in price, they deserve a phone call or they deserve a, um, you know, some sort of different communication. Just to give you a little anecdote, one of our customers, uh, they are, you know, a platform. It's not a very positive story, so I can't tell you who it is. They're a platform, so their customers make money on the platform. Um, they had a cohort of customers, uh, and they've raised a ton of money, like $100 million plus, you know, um, venture raising. Uh, they basically had a cohort of customers they spent a ridiculous amount of money acquiring that basically were costing them, you know, $1,200 a month, uh, just in infrastructure costs. And they um, were paying $30 a month for the product. So they were in a situation where they had this giant cohort. Now, what was great is that part of this cohort was making a lot of money on the platform. So they had a group of this cohort that was making, you know, a million dollars a year or more, right? And so what the CEO did is, is he called every single one of these customers and it was a long list, but he said, listen, here's the situation. You know, you've been using us for X, you know, X long, you've made this much money and you've only been paying us this. And, and, you know, that's on us, right? Like that, that's what our price was. Unfortunately, because of the situation, I have to raise your price to 3,500 a month and 90% of those calls, they were like, yeah, okay. Right. Yeah. Cause, Cause I'm making a million dollars. Like, yeah, that's right. Fine. Yeah. Right, right. I get it. Like, yeah, obviously I don't want to pay more, but sure. Now the rest of that cohort, unfortunately they weren't, you know, they weren't making money or as much money. And so there, there was a you know, couple of slices there that they were able to raise prices to a point that you know, actually got over that $1,200 of cost. But a lot of them, they just had to kind of fire as customers. And it was really bad for the business because they couldn't find a way to bring the infrastructure costs low enough, but they'd spent so much money acquiring them that it was just a huge waste of capital. I mean, if they're um, unit economic negative customers, then like... It's a bummer for the logos. But yeah, but Patrick, like you said, like the bummer is like, I mean, it's it's all sunk cost. So like, forget it. But like, you spent so much money acquiring them. It's like, oh, it's like terrible use of capital. Well, there's, there's a good lesson there. And I know it's a little, little apart from the point that we're going on is that you should bring your unit economics into this analysis of pricing as well. Um, so the reason profit was free is, yeah, we get a network effect and, and now there's like a really good narrative around and, and the, why we made that decision. But the, the impetus to like going for free or even having the discussion was we were going to charge for the metrics product. We discovered that our, all of our conceptions of what we thought willingness to pay was for an analytics tool. Um, and we should have seen the writing on the wall. BI in analytics is a terribly hard space. Everyone starts off, we're going to democratize, you know, this across the space. And then they're like, nope, fortune five, because 
retention is terrible and we need to get this through the door. Well, what we found is basically our two cohort, our two segments, I should say, one we were going to break even on just when it came to CAC and lifetime value. And then the other, um, we were basically going to be underwater by 50%. So we were going to pay twice as much um, as lifetime value. And what happened is like we discovered like our, our competitors they didn't know this information. They weren't collecting this data. And so this, we say this saved us about 18 months when we try to calculate it. But it was one of those things where we were like, we're definitely either giving up on this product, we're going up market, and we weren't in a venture raising kind of motion. So you're like, eh, it probably doesn't make sense to do that, especially for a BI product that's going to require a ton of engineers to build all kinds of edge cases and security features and things. Or we have to figure out, you know, does free, you know, is free viable? And that's what we ended up doing through, you know, some other research and things like that. I mean, that's such an important decision to make, but I got to imagine, especially for you guys, like being bootstrapped, like not like these decisions that impact capital, you've referenced a couple of times, like, is it a $1 million decision? Is it a $10 million decision? Like that's, that's real. That's like, you know, real, like you have only so many resources based on your, you know, cash that you are generating at the business and like how you reinvest it. Obviously every company should think this way, but you know, in the, environment we've been in for the past 10 years like a lot of venture back companies are doing things like you were just describing of like oh yeah let's go out and spend a lot of money acquiring this set of customers and not think about that well david you bring up an interesting point that i i, I want to make sure we dive into here with patrick it's probably our, our last big segment here in the episode but being a bootstrap company uh how many times have you made the decision to stay bootstrapped and what was your calculus on starting the business that way? And what's your calculus on keeping the business that way? <laughs> so this is one of those religious topics as well, where everyone's <laughs> like, bootstrappers suck or VCs suck, right? <laughs> I, uh, and, and, you know, the end of those conversations is always, it depends, right? And I think that for us, we, in the beginning, it was just complete naivete. Like, I'm a first-time founder, and, and I never, like, you know, I, I, I knew what funding was, you know, but I wasn't, I didn't know how to raise money and, and you know, all the articles out there. And, and I just thought through, well, hey, is this a viable option? And, and we did have the opportunity to have um, just raise a small seed round in the early stages, six to nine months into the business. I think that because that's when I started like, oh, this is, you know, I went to enough events and everyone, you know, craps on events, but like they're a really great place to learn, right? Especially when you're so new. But I think that what what I kind of, what we kind of found is that our lifetime value and our ACV were high enough that we were able to kind of like bankroll the business. And what happened with us is we, and this was not all, this is like very hindsight like, it's not really foresight um, at the time. But I think that if we were to raise money in the early stages, uh, we would have went really quickly right into a brick wall uh, because we were going in different and incorrect directions. And we were doing it slower than we would have with cash. Now, this isn't to say anything against raising money. It was it was my idiocy and ignorance that was the reason we were going the wrong direction, right? And so I think that that's really kind of our little story about bootstrapping. And then over the last seven and a half years, we have lots of fun conversations and you know, uh, our whole litmus, and I think it's the standard litmus for thinking through these things has been, okay, well... Are the problems we're trying to solve related to money? No, right? Like in the early stages, they weren't. It was, where do we go? And we're making enough money to kind of learn each day. Um, we're not trying to blow out a sales team and things like that. And money would have helped, of course. But then money comes with a lot of like expectations, obviously, which is important because that's what you get in exchange for the cash. And so, and then it became, 
okay, well, we know where we're going and we know what we'd spend the money on. Are we being held back by the money? And it's like, okay, um, no, right? And that's where it gets a little sticky, right? Because you're like, well, are you being held back? You could accelerate with it. So at the beginning of last year, we, we did, you know, we went on a few dates, if you will. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we ended up having someone who was, you know, and we, we also, as, as all founders do, our baby is worth more than maybe other people think and all this kind of stuff. And we've always been a little insecure because we have this tech-enabled service and everyone's like, oh, it's consulting. And we're always like, it's not consulting. It's not consulting. And they're like, well, like the margins must be terrible. Like everyone makes all these assumptions about business. I've learned how to not make assumptions about people's businesses unless I ask because everyone's always like, well, your margins are terrible. And we're like, how do you know? Actually, our gross margins are better than most software companies. They're 81%. It's insane, right? Um, on our tech enabled service company and then our software pure software products have you know basically pure software margins which are you know actually actually this is kind of funny our retained product gross margin 79 percent, so it's less than our tech enabled service product which is kind of insane is price intelligently the tech enabled service yeah so price intelligently the tech enabled service um because there's a people element and, and basically i don't know if i mentioned this but uh basically people were like hey I really like this data, but I need to talk to a human because pricing's a little complex and everyone's involved and there's politics. Um, and we, well, I it's think also I the kind of thing that, before, like, you, I can imagine you feel so nervous. You're like, I don't, I don't want to make this decision without talking to somebody who knows yeah, what they're talking about, you know? A ton of people. That's, and that's really what it started with is like this confidence gap. And we tried to close that with software and it's just, it's not there. Now, we're kind of shifting our model in the next couple of years. We kind of have a roadmap to start doing things more automated, similar to our retained product. And we think the market's finally ready for some of that stuff. Um, not the dynamism we were talking about, but like, you know, a, a small step towards that. But to, to close out the like bootstrapping thing, we basically, we found people who got what we were trying to do and got that we wanted this big vision and wanted to be a big company and all this other fun stuff. We had one person get really aggressive with a term sheet before we even, you know, were talking. And then we were like, eh, like it was the valuation we kind of wanted, but it was, we knew it was going to like, we were going to get like hurt when it went into terms just because, you know, they were so aggressive. And so long story short, we've, we've dated a few times, but we just haven't, you know, converted to, you know, raising cash. I think we'll raise cash at some point. It's really rare. You see a company do more than hundred million in revenue hasn't raised cash, um, but yeah, I don't know if I answered your question at that point. I just kind of ruminated on our, you know, bootstrapping woes, basically. No, it's great. I mean, I think it's, frankly, it's the calculus that I think a lot of listeners are thinking through, either who are currently working at a venture-backed company and trying to decide if that's the path they would go and starting something on their own, or a lot of people who are hacking around on something um, have a little bit of traction and trying to decide, especially in this climate, like, do I go sell a story or do I do I sort of chill a little bit longer and accept slower growth or you know maybe it's not even a, a viable business yet at all and and it's not about the growth speed it's just about being able to you know sustain your lifestyle while while building your vision and i everyone's got a different way to slice it but i, I always think that the perspectives are helpful what i what i'm excited about with this environment and i'll say that now because things haven't cratered but things aren't you know they're not uh we'll, we'll have to see how things go and maybe i'll revise this that's the 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 ugliness of recording early. Right. But, um, I think that what's kind of interesting is, is I'm excited for like equilibrium to kind of come back a little bit 
you know, valuations, like, yeah, valuations have always going, been going up because now money's really plentiful, which is great. Um, and, but also companies are now plentiful, right? So it's just a different environment. And I think it's dangerous to compare too much to like 2001, you know, 2008, these types of things. But what I will say is, um, whenever you have too much extreme, in certain like markets or even like the government with politics and things like that, like you never win, right? It's, it's when there's an equilibrium. And I think one thing that we've missed out on um, with a VC partner are all the things that come with great venture partners or PE partners, right? Which are, you know, hey, we're going to help you hire key hires. Um, we're not great at hiring execs. Like we just haven't been and we've tried. And um, I think that it, we haven't spent enough time on it. We can get great and, you know, hire firms and stuff to help us. But, you know, we wouldn't have to worry about that. You know, we don't have as many advisors except for fellow you know founders and things like that who look at the market differently right and so i think there's a lot of value there and what i'm excited about is i think that now that things are going back to a little bit of equilibrium it's going to give the investment side as well as the company side to kind of reset a little bit on what's this relationship look like now that money is still somewhat plentiful um might not be writing checks but it's still there um and you know we've we've kind of gotten over that initial hump of hey a vc you have to be more than just money so i don't know it'll be interesting to see um we're not going to raise money until, you know, this kind of settles down a little bit and we might not ever, but you know, we're, we're at least, uh, we're open to it, which I think is, you know, more so than a lot of the, you know, the bootstrap crowd who's like, yeah, y'all are evil or something like that. <laughs> I'm super curious just to pull on this digression for, for one more minute. Cause I think this would be instructive to a lot of our listeners who are thinking about this. When you guys started, you're starting, you know, the ambition to start a software company. What did your founding team look like and how much like capital needs did you guys need to fund to do that? Right. Cause like if I'm starting now, like if I'm a solo non-technical founder, I'm like, well, maybe I can do stuff with no code, but maybe I really need some developers. So maybe I should raise some money for that. Or like, maybe I need to put some capital in infrastructure or whatever. Like what, what did, if you're willing to say, what did that like calculus look like for you guys? You're giving me PTSD flashbacks right now. <laughs> no. So I think that I had a terrible founding story, but it's not a, it's not a, uh, uncommon founding story. So I had, um, I, I made all the terrible mistakes. Um, I didn't really know my co-founders. Uh, my co-founders were part-time. We definitely did not set the vesting and terms and all that kind of stuff up nicely. It wasn't like anyone was trying to take advantage of anyone, or at least that's the most, the least charitable interpretation. I think the most charitable is none of us knew what was going on, right? So uh, really what happened is I was, I was pretty much a solo founder, you know, working 18 hours a day in a room, you know, alone. Um, and these guys would occasionally help at nights, occasionally help at weekends, definitely with like advice if I needed it. But it was, it was, it was a not like, at least in my opinion, it, it didn't feel like an equal like situation. Um, and there was a lot of resentment that probably could have been solved if I was a better executive where I could go, all right, let's do expectation setting. And we should have like, you know, dated a little bit more before we like founded a company and a whole host of things. So, um, and they're still on our board. Everything's like amazing now. And they're, they, they've been so helpful over the past, like, you know, seven and a half, eight years, but it was, it was a terrible founding story. Um, <laughs> Were you an engineer? Were you the only one coding or were you outsourcing engineering? No, this is, this is where it's even more terrible. Um, so, uh, I, my background's in econometrics and math. I'm more like a data science engineer and then not even like, I wouldn't even call myself that now because that's an actual engineering job right now. Like I, I nowhere near full stack. I know what code is and I can like fix bugs. So in the early days I was fixing bugs, but there were times where I was like, Hey, uh, you know, you guys committed to like, you know, fix things when needed. And like, I would go to one of these, these guys' apartments. And again, this is, is a dramatic story, but it was, 
it's very understandable how things happen. Be like, hey, we, you said you were going to work on this. Oh, I had a long day at work. Like, let's just drink some wine and hang out, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm like, ah, like I got to get this done for a customer and like this type of thing. So, and and, and it's just because expectations weren't set and like communication wasn't solid. And like, again, like it, it, it's it's not a... You know, there wasn't a taking advantage of or anything like that, but that was troublesome. Um, but I think that to, to answer maybe the the specifics of the question, we basically didn't need a ton. Like what I did is I cashed in my 401k, no kids, no like wife, anything like that um, at the time. And so cashed in my 401k, which again, I was 25. So it's not like a massive amount of money. Yeah. It's probably, you know, wasn't good for my future, <laughs> but, um, it was about, I think it was like $14,000 or something after the taxes, major tax hit, or maybe that was before the tax. It, it was around 10 grand. I remember that. And living in Boston, that's not a lot of time. Um, so, you know, lived on ramen and, and not actual ramen, but like lived ramen lifestyle. And basically, I mean, I gave myself nine months and I was like, Hey, uh, within nine months, if I can't pay me myself something, we'll figure it out then, right? I can always, and, and really what allowed me, because I come from a very blue collar background, really poor as a kid, and, and what gave me the conception of, hey, I, I'm willing to do this is one, I was like, you know, a classic mantra of, you only got one life, but two, it was, hey, like you can always find a job. Like it might be being a barista at Starbucks, might be digging a ditch, but you can find a job to like get to the basics. And thankfully we started getting revenue within those nine months. And then I hired our first team member because it was just me. And then there was this guy, Peter Zotto, who, you know, from a traditional sense is more of a co-founder than anything. My co-founder by name are more, they were like advisors and initial folks, but yeah, that's kind of how it shook out. And um, I would say that, you know, I was definitely in a good place. I was blessed where if I had obligations with family and stuff like that, probably would have had to wait another five years to try something. And maybe I never would have tried it um, just because, you know, that at that point I'd have a mortgage or something and that kind of thing. But yeah, I think it's, it's not for everybody. And I, 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 I recognize that like that style of bootstrapping is very specific to like when you're young and dumb or like you're in a good place, you know, in terms of, well, you can probably make that same calculus like that. in terms of, yeah. Like what do you have? Do you have personal runway? what are the expenses going to be to get it off the ground? Like, can you, yeah, it's funny. Your story like is almost exactly, I don't know if you know this, but the Atlassian founders, the same thing. They, they just graduated from college and they were like, all right, well, uh, we could go work at McKinsey that we would make X amount like a year to do that. What if, uh, what if we give ourselves a year and see if we can get to the same salary that we would pay ourselves? Like, yeah, well that's, that's a whole nother story. Cause I, this is, this is something that's interesting about like, I think in, in a bootstrapping business or like, let's say you're doing the agency or something like that. I think, I don't know, a theory that I have is like, you can, some of these folks that I see, they get a little too, they start paying themselves too much is like, is like my opinion. And what that ends up happening is then they, they go into like, well, let's just be that, that agency. And then they're like, yeah, but I want to be the hundred million dollar company. And, and there's that disconnect. So what we did is like, I, my it took me like I went to zero on on salary as well as savings within this time. I mean, again, no obligations except for myself, which which you know, thankful. And and I didn't have student loans, thank God. I had scholarship, right? Like again, and these are all these things that our generation has to deal with now. And so I'm like, just making sure that I'm pointing out that I was blessed in the, in these scenarios. But and then salary became three grand a month, like and started at like you know a very meager salary, and then. For a good three, four years, it, it took me like three, four years to actually like 
you know, hey, like I'm going to make like six figures, that type of thing. And I think that was that was really helpful for us because it allowed us to hire certain folks that we never would have been able to hire and probably took some time off the clock. And so just a piece of advice, like don't look at the first year only, like look at like the first four or five years because, you know, there's better ways to make money. And if money is like the most important thing to you, like go work at McKinsey, go, go become a $250,000 a year, like, you know, consultant. That's, that's totally fine. It's great. Um, you know, it's not founding a company, but we all don't have to be founders. Well, Patrick, thank you. Not only for the great discussion on pricing. I mean, I, I feel more educated, but in, in sharing your story, I mean, I think it's, uh, it's it's just one of the best things about doing this show is getting to to really hear the the real stories from people like you. Yeah, hundred percent. Thanks for having me, guys. Where can folks find you on the internet? So uh, just Patrick at profitable.com um, might take me a bit to, to get back to you, but uh, definitely get back to everyone at some point. Uh, and then just Patrick Campbell on LinkedIn. That's kind of where I post a lot of stuff. So yeah, always always up for helping and always up for chatting. And what types of companies? Yeah, should get in touch with uh, with Profitwell. Yeah, I know you have this free pricing audit. Can you talk a little bit about that and if, if that's interesting for folks? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, we have free pricing and also retention audits now. So we're, we're sitting on so much data that we can give you some really good benchmarks, like very specific to you and not just like, hey, you're vertical, but hey, there's companies that similarly like flow in terms of their growth and churn and everything is to you um, or have similar ARPU and ACV. And so, uh, yeah, just email Patrick at profile.com and I can get you hooked up with those. Um, you either, you know, the most elegant way to do this is if you hook up to Profilewell, you know, for free with Zora, Stripe, whatever, it takes two minutes. You can basically get that really easily and more specific. Um, if you're, you know, big dog and have, you know, so much security and compliance stuff, it's totally fine. Like just get on the phone with us and we can like back into it for you um, without having to hook up as well. But yeah, happy to, happy to help, as I said. And, you know, any question, we probably have written something on the question you have too. So don't be afraid to email me and, uh, you know, we can send you over that information or that data to be helpful. Yeah, there's so much content. If uh, if you want to dig more into any of this stuff, um, there's there, you guys, be it on the Price Intelligently site or the ProfitWell site, have just you've certainly talked about it. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for listening. Patrick, thanks so much for joining. See you next time.